So the going wisdom is that if you want people to watch your YouTube videos, you got to tell them something shocking and astounding, some grand conspiracy like, you know, there's there's words in your Bible written in red that Jesus might not have said or or uh, did you know that it's possible that the, that you can have some of the Holy Spirit taken off of you uh, or that you can get more of the Holy Spirit? Um, and then and then during my video, I'm supposed to ex explain that and perhaps it will end up not to be so exciting, but to get your attention, I got to start there. And, and so today I'm, well, I'm going to do that. <laughs> not so much. Uh, we are going to talk about though, something that is written in your, in your Bible that, that Jesus might not have said. There's a good explanation for this, of course. And we're also going to talk about the Holy Spirit and, and, and the measure of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about a few other things. And the point is not to just get views or astound you, but the, the point is hopefully to help you become better uh, students of the Bible and to know God better. And so that's what we have ahead of us on today's episode. It should be fun as we continue our uh, walk through the book of John together. And I'm glad that you you're here to join me today on yet another episode of The Apostles Mailbox. All right, so I've, I've given you plenty of information about what we are going to talk about. Um, and so we're just going to jump into it. Where we left off last was in John chapter 3. And my apologies for taking so long to get this next one out. I've been wrestling with a lot of different things, reading a bunch of different books um, that are not necessarily even about this, but yet have also played into my understanding of this passage. And so we've got good things ahead. Uh, but as usual, we're just going to start with the text. We're going to read that, and then we're going to talk about some of the questions that arise as we do that and as we bring that up. So uh, we're, we left off with John 3.30 last time, and so we're going to pick up right here in John 3.31 this time. Um, and uh, so you can just follow along with me. Uh, he who comes from above, the evangelist writes, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So it's actually not a very long text that we're going to talk about today, but it is uh, covering a lot of important and somewhat controversial topics. We're trying not not get too controversial here, because um, the point is not controversy, but the point is to understand and to learn. Uh, but that is going to lead us through some questions. And so I've decided, you know what, let's just call this uh, the spirit without measure, um, because uh, that is one of these key phrases that shows up here in today's passage where it tells us uh, that uh, he, that is God, gives the Spirit without measure uh, to he whom God has sent. We're going to talk about all that in a minute, um, but I wanted to begin with this question, perhaps the most like shocking question that we that's on our docket today, which is which is this, like, is it possible that some of the words written in your Bible in red were not actually said by Jesus? And there's a good reason to conclude that, that it's quite possible that that's 
uh, true. But I don't say that to mean like there's teaching in there that is ascribed to Jesus that isn't from Jesus, but something else entirely. And why did this come up? Well, I was as I was studying this passage, I got to this point where, as you noticed uh, last week or last episode, if you were with us, uh, that we have uh, some some of John the Baptist's teaching here showing up in in verses 27 through 30. And then when we get to to verse 31, we have these statements about Jesus and also these statements about he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And most likely, as I'm trying to figure out what does that mean, my my assumption is that that is a reference uh, to John the Baptist. He's contrasting himself, right, with Jesus. But the question then is, is it John the Baptist contrasting himself with Jesus, or is it the evangelist, that is, the person who wrote the Gospel of John? And it seems like this is a, a this would be, in some ways, a more natural flow for us to understand that the evangelist has told us uh, that what John was saying about himself and about Jesus was that John was saying, I was sent ahead of the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. And then the Messiah came after me. He must become greater. I must become less. And then this next passage makes so much more sense if the evangelist now steps back from John's teaching and he explains to us what's going on here. And so the evangelist, we can assume, uh, might be saying, he who comes from above is above all. That's a reference to Jesus. And then he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And that's a third person reference to John the Baptist. And so the question is, who's talking? Is it John the Baptist? Well, possibly. It is possible that John the Baptist starts referring to himself in the third person here. But it's also, uh, it's not possible, most likely, that this is Jesus, because we have no introduction that Jesus is here in mind uh, speaking, though it's not entirely impossible, I guess we should say. Uh, and it's quite possible, and I would say even probable, that who's speaking here is the evangelist. Right, And so it's the person writing this gospel. The person who, who wrote this gospel started with an introduction in chapter 1 where it's his teaching to us. And he's going to have other comments that are directed from the person writing this gospel to us as the reader. And I think that's what's happening here. But that raises the question then, uh, and, and I'm not the first one to say this, there are n numerous other commentators who also believe that this is also what's happening in verses 16 through 21. And, and why is that important? Well, let's just back up a little bit here. If we scroll back to John six, uh, 3, verses 16 through 21, we have Jesus talking to Nicodemus, in, uh, in verses 10 and on, Jesus is teaching about his need to be lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness. And then we have this, this other statement here that it is very possible didn't come out of Jesus' mouth. This also could be a summary or an explanation or a teaching to us provided by the evangelist to help us understand those words Jesus had said. 
Now remember, when Jesus was on earth and he taught, he explained a lot of things that people didn't understand. And only later, Jesus had to explain them to his disciples for them to get it. Or the evangelist, whoever's writing these gospels, explains to us what they meant sort of after the fact. And uh, some scholars, many scholars, uh, believe that that's what's going on here in John 3.16, is that the evangelist is now explaining to us uh, what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about being lifted up as the snake in the desert, right? And so he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And if that's the case, then what's going on here is not actually Jesus' words. It's not Jesus speaking, but it's the evangelist teaching us Jesus' message. Okay, that doesn't mean that Jesus never taught anything like this, but what it might mean is that these aren't Jesus' words. And you go, oh, okay. So now remember, we've been talking about things that are sometimes put into your Bible in an attempt to be helpful, but that can actually mislead us in our understanding of Scripture. We talked about these, you know, these section breaks, these summaries that get in there that were not written when the original book was written. We talk about verses and, and chapter markings that were not in there originally. And then, you know, if you have a really, really helpful book, uh, you might have it in red to, to signal to you that Jesus is speaking. But the reality is, is that Greek didn't have good punctuation like, I'd say good, uh, didn't have very distinctive punctuation like us, especially when it came to, uh, to making quotations. And in fact, it's most likely that in those days, they didn't think about quotations exactly the same we do, way we do, right? So if, if you were to uh, be writing a news article and, and, and you quoted somebody, but you, you swapped out one word for another accidentally and it didn't really change the meaning of that, like you'd be accused of misquoting that person, that would be a big no-no. When you slap quotation marks on there, you got to make sure it's, it's word for word. Uh, but the reality is that that's not how things work in those days. And so we, as, as modern Western readers, we like to think in terms of like direct quotations. Uh, but the reality is, is that you couldn't determine those um, originally in the Greek text. And, and so what's happening here is uh, whoever has translated this text and whoever has published it has decided in their head that this is Jesus speaking. And that's an interpretive decision. That's a decision made in interpretation. It's not evident in the text. And so uh, you then, when you're reading this, you automatically, if you're like me, like you picture Jesus in your head still talking and saying these things. And then as you continue to read, then you go, Oh, well, okay, so what if, if if that wasn't Jesus, like, does that make any difference? And typically it doesn't. Uh, but I have had this experience, particularly in reading in the book of Revelation, uh, where there are many different speakers. Jesus speaks, God speaks, angelic messengers speak. Uh, the, the, the guy uh, recording Revelation has got his words in there. And so uh, you have these parts blocked off as red, and and it's not always perfectly clear that it's Jesus who's speaking those things, and they could be wrong. And so, uh, in some ways, I didn't say that don't trust your Bible, but I would say understand, recognize when you're reading that these interpretive decisions, they're not inerrant, right? The people who made that decision, they could have been wrong. 
Uh, but you assume because it's in your Bible, and that's the way a Bible is written, oh yeah, the words of Jesus are in red, uh, you assume that it was Jesus. But that's not always certain, okay? And that can be a little bit of a, a tough idea for us to wrap our heads around, but it is what it is, right? You can't go back and force John to put in quotation marks and tell you exactly who's speaking where. Like, you just can't do it. You, you work with what you have. Uh, and, and along those lines, I have here next to, if you look at my screen here, uh, the, the Net Bible, the New English Translation, which is often a really neat Bible. One thing that's helpful about the Net is they have, they have good footnotes that often uh, discuss the decisions they made in terms of what old manuscripts to rely on. So I think we've talked about this before, this idea of text criticism, that if you have, you know, 10 different ancient Greek manuscripts and some of them disagree in what word is given in a certain place, uh, and, and so the translators have to have to guess as to which one they think was the original, and they have a lot of tools for doing this. The Net Bible, in their notes, will often explain the reasoning behind why they chose one word versus another. Um, and so there's some good information in those footnotes. Um, and, and the Net, I believe, is free in most places if you have digital resources, so it's very handy to use. Usually you will, you know, mouse over these texts, and then, they, and then you will get good footnotes. It's kind of like a, a study Bible, except the notes are typically a little bit, um, well, they just have a different focus. It's, it's hard to explain, but if you use the Net Bible much, you'll, you will understand that it's not quite like a typical study Bible. Um, but also, what I've noticed with the Net is that sometimes they make decisions about the, the text that they explain why they did, but again, you still have to recognize that they also make mistakes. And in these case, in, the, in this case, um, I, I just read one commentary today that basically states that the end of verse 31 uh, was a duplication of something, and it probably wasn't present in the original. And uh, the Net Bible footnote explains why they think it is original and that the shorter version of this verse is not original. So again, these are helpful resources, but you have to remember, like when you're not dealing with the text, you can't just assume that because the translators translated a certain way that it's absolutely certain that's the way it is. Um, whether it's the color of the text or the heading or the footnote or the study note in your Bible. Uh, and this is why we say, if you can learn uh, Greek and Hebrew, wonderful, more power to you, that's great. Uh, it's not really attainable for most people, I would say. Uh, however, you do, if you're an English speaker, you have access to many English translations, uh, and it's fairly easy to get um, some study resources online, places like Blue Letter Bible, or you know, Bible Gateway will let you compare many different English translations at once, and you can always uh, you can always just type in a, a verse that you're curious about, and you can see 10 or 20 different ways in which Bible scholars have thought it ought to be translated. And if they're all super consistent, uh, then you can be more uh, confident, assuming that's, the, that's a good way to translate it. And if there's a lot of variance, then maybe you just sort of back up and say, well, you know, I, I think this one sounds reasonable to me, but... Uh, you certainly don't want to start any big fights over something where different, well-educated, well-trained Bible translators have translated a certain text in a couple different ways, okay? And, and one of the, well, 
I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> but I bring this up for this reason, because right here in John 3.31, like you have John, the probably the evangelist, uh, who's who's writing this gospel for us. It's He's probably explaining John the Baptist's teaching and what's going on here. He's making some commentary about Jesus. This, this is probably not a quotation of John the Baptist. And that brings up the fact that uh, even earlier in this chapter, there's some teaching about Jesus, and it's not entirely certain that Jesus taught those words. And you say, well, Andy, what does it really matter? Uh, in, in most cases, I would say it doesn't. Uh, but every once in a while, when somebody is talking about themselves, they would phrase things in a different way than if other people are talking about them, right? And it might bring a different weight of significance to something, depending on who's saying it. So imagine I got a friend, uh, we'll call him Steve, and we'll say, okay, Steve, uh, he's not really that good at basketball, okay? If I'm talking about Steve and I'm saying he's not really that good about basketball, you hear that and knowing <laughs> that I live in the Midwest, you might be, you might be in the back of your head be thinking like, hmm, is that like he's not really that good at basketball? Or is that a kind and gracious way of saying that guy is terrible at basketball, right? Because if he's terrible, I'm not going to, if I'm gracious to him, I'm not going to say he's terrible at basketball. So when I say he's not that good at basketball, uh, you you hear that in a certain way. Now, if we ask Steve and we say, hey, Steve, are you any good at basketball? And Steve says, well, I'm not really that good at basketball. Uh, then the uh, the the probability sort of goes the other direction. You, you might say, okay, well, maybe Steve's not really that good at basketball, but maybe Steve is just humble and he really is good at basketball. And if you know Steve's a generally humble man, then your estimation of his skills probably is a little bit higher because you're thinking like, oh, Steve doesn't want to brag. He doesn't want to say he's, the, he's a, a really good basketball player. Um, or maybe, you know, Steve just, he knows he plays around really, really good basketball players all the time. And he's compared to them. He's not amazing. And, and so he says, I'm not really that good. Uh, but when he says it about himself, it means something most likely uh, than if I say it about him especially given what you know about me and about Steve, uh, you would you would change, you would adjust your assumptions of what that means, right? And so we say, in you know, in your Bible, it's written in red letters. And you say, well, did Jesus say it or well, did somebody else say it? In most cases, it probably doesn't make any difference, but in some cases, it might. And so we're just trying to open your eyes a little bit when you're reading scripture, not to get so like rigidly like, oh, and then there's a a chapter break and there's a there's a title and it tells me what it's about so that must be you know infallibly what it's about it's not always the case uh, bible translators uh, they do make mistakes if you've been uh if you've been around baptists evangelicals whatever you might hear this question like have you been born again you know if you ever went to a billy graham crusade have you been born again you must be born again and we hear this phrase and we're like okay what does it mean to be born again well it means that you pray this one prayer you accept jesus as savior and lord and then you're like born again that's what it means um but the, the interesting thing is here in our text today, we read this. He who comes from above is above all. Okay, we're talking about Jesus. And here in this context, clearly, it's talking about him coming from heaven. He's in uh, the word here in Greek, which as I hover over it here, my software will tell you it's uh, anothen. 
um, this is Greek word over here. Uh, the word anothen means uh, from above is probably the best way to translate it, though it could also mean uh, again, right? And so here's the deal. When, when we read it here, it's very clear. He who comes anothen is from above. We're talking about Jesus coming from heaven. He's coming from above. But in John 3, 3, uh, let's see if I can uh, find this here. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Actually, that word translated again is anothen. It's the same word right? So when Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we've always heard it translated born again. And so we think in terms of like numerical value, born once, born again. Uh, but it's, there's a good likelihood that what Jesus is talking about is he's saying, you can't have the king, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born from above, from, unless you have this heavenly birth. And so he might be talking more, he might be emphasizing more the nature of this new birth rather than the fact that it's a second time. And we might even have a clue of this, right? Because Nicodemus, what does Nicodemus do? He hears it wrong. What's What do we see again and again in John? Jesus teaches people hear it wrong. So Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so, because this word could have this sense of like a second time or again, uh, that's how Nicodemus hears it. And maybe unfortunately, uh, because Nicodemus hears it that way and he says it, we assume that he's right and we assume with him that it's really about a second time when Jesus is talking about something else, okay? So here we have, uh, we have the evangelist telling us that the one who comes, Anothen, is above all. So, uh, and then he, com he compares John the Baptist, he who is of the earth, of course, John the Baptist belongs to the earth, and so he speaks according to earthly wisdom, but uh, he who comes from heaven is above all. This is Jesus, okay? So, he then, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So, we're talking about Jesus here. And we have to understand, the evangelist wants us to know that when Jesus teaches, he teaches what he has seen and heard. And then he makes this interesting movement here, okay? He says, whoever receives his testimony, that is, the testimony of the one from above who speaks as to what he's seen and heard, whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, Okay, so now if, if we're reading this and you have brought with you all of your like Sunday school lessons, uh, then you go, ah, okay, I know what John's talking about, right? Jesus is God. And so if you believe Jesus, you believe God, end of story. Uh, and then you just zoom past the end of this passage. But actually, that's not what's going on here. Okay, <laughs> John, the, the evangelist actually is going to explain what he means by that. And so again, we, we got to try not to jump to our conclusions, but we have to understand this because there's something significant going on here. 
So he says, if you receive the testimony of Jesus, the one from above, you are setting your seal to this. That's kind of like stamping a paper. Um, you go to the courthouse, you get something like auth, like stamped as as certified as true, or or you get something um, notarized, if you will. Uh, he says, if you set, if you receive the testimony about Jesus, you are affirming that God is true. And here's why he says you're affirming that God is true when you believe Jesus, when you receive his testimony. He says, for the one whom God sent, he whom God sent, that's Jesus, utters the words of God. Okay, so his logical connection here is that uh, the one God sent is speaking the words of God. And so if you believe those words, you're believing God's message as true, right? And so again, we might get ahead of ourselves and we say, oh yeah, right? Because Jesus is God and therefore he speaks God's word. But then John explains, look at this. He says, for he, that is God, gives the spirit without measure and the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Okay, so the message that John's telling us is this. The one God sent speaks God's word because God's spirit is in him without measure. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit. This is where it gets a little bit, I don't want to say controversial, but it, it, it treads on an area that has been controversial. Um, and, and he explains, because the Father, that is God, loves the Son, that is Jesus, and the Father has given all things into his hands. And so you have this connection in the text, right, that Jesus is bearing witness. He's talking about things that he has seen and heard, right? And so this idea is that Jesus has received something that he has seen and heard, and, and God has put the Spirit on Jesus without measure. We'll talk about that again in a second. And yet, uh, when Jesus speaks, no one receives his testimony. So it's like there's this, this chain of, of teaching, of understanding, where it should come from the Father to the Son, and then from the Son to us, but we have failed and are a part of that link to receive that testimony from Jesus. He says, but if you do receive from Jesus, ultimately, he says, what you're receiving is traced all the way back to God, because God, by the Spirit, has given all things into Jesus' hands. And so, uh, the reason Jesus is speaking God's word, and we know that, is because God has put his Spirit without measure uh, to Jesus. Okay? And, and, and so now we got to ask that question, well, what does it mean that God has given the Spirit without measure? All right, hold on. I think i got a slide here. Okay, so the ability for Jesus to speak God's Word, just in, in, in summary here, is that Jesus is speaking things he has seen and he has heard, and he is speaking these things because the Father has given all these things into his hand, and because the Father gives the Spirit without measure. So the question is, what do you mean without measure? And the idea is like if you take a measuring cup and you fill, you know, you fill out a measure, or if you if you take a bunch of stuff and you chop it up into different measures, right? That a measure would be a part. And and so what John is saying is that when God gives the Spirit to Jesus, He doesn't give Him a part. It is complete. It is not measured up. It is not reduced in any way. There's no a partialness to this, 
but the entire spirit of God rests in Jesus. And this might connect to something that, that the Apostle Paul says, uh, for instance, that in Christ the fullness of the spirit was pleased to dwell in bodily form. Uh, generally speaking, my whole life, I've said to people, you know what, you can't have more left of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a person. What are you going to, like, get the Holy Spirit without an arm or a leg? You can't, can't just get half of the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? This is this is madness. <laughs> but uh, in the last year, actually, I've, I've read some things in the Bible where I thought, huh, that's interesting. I want to show you a couple of them. So, uh, in Numbers 11, okay, God is talking, and me, I, I I have this idea that maybe we've talked about this uh, on this channel before. Maybe not. Um, if so, my apologies, but I'm going to just retread this ground here. <laughs> okay, I know I've talked about it with people recently. I just can't remember if it's you. So in Numbers 11, uh, God is talking to Moses. Moses is overwhelmed. He's trying to judge the whole nation of Israel, and there's just too many problems for him to, to address them all personally. And so uh, Yahweh, the Father, says, I will come down and I will talk with you there and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Okay, so basically Yahweh says, you can't do all this alone. You pick out some good, some godly men, some reliable men, and then you, you set them apart. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some of the spirits on you that's on you and put it on them. And literally, like the way this is written has this sense in those words of like literally removing part of something and then putting it on something else, right? So it's, uh, you know, and you think, well... Okay, what's going on here? Uh, because if God can, of course, give the Holy Spirit to Moses to do his job, why can't God just give more of the Holy Spirit to these other people? Why does he have to take some from Moses in order to put it on other people? Why uh, Isn't there just like this inexhaustible bucket of the Spirit? We don't know how it works, right? It's God. <laughs> We're trying to take transcendent eternal things and smash them into human context but like why why does it why does it say that uh, and and then of course as you continue reading that's exactly what the bible says happened so then yahweh comes down in the cloud and he and he speaks to moses and he takes some of the spirit that was on him right he doesn't say and then he just gave the other elders uh, the same kind of spirit or the same spirit that Moses had, but it says he took some of the spirit that was on Moses and then he put that same spirit on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. And, and I'm going like, I, I don't know what to do with that, right? And, and I still don't know what to do with it, honestly. But as you're trying to listen to scripture, um, the way you grow is, is when you stop assuming that you know everything and you go like, maybe there's some nuance to this or something here that I'm not getting, okay? And maybe it's possible, uh, notice that he didn't say, I will take the whole spirit from you and give it to them or divvy it up among them. So we don't know exactly how it works, but this the strange way in which it's phrased is possibly important. God says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you and I'm going to put it on them. Okay, and then you look at Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah's at the end of his life and ministry and Elisha's with them. And then in uh, 2 Kings uh, 
2, verse 9, when they had crossed, Elijah says to Elisha, ask what shall I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And so, uh, I don't know, I, I used to read that and I would go, oh, well, Elisha wants twice as much of what Elijah has, because um, I'm I'm a Westerner and a Moderner, and I didn't understand uh Maybe I had heard, but I wasn't thinking in these terms, that the double portion was the inheritance of the firstborn. So uh, when you were a firstborn son, um, you got twice as much of the inheritance as all the rest of the family because you were the firstborn, you were the heir. And so you got the full shebang. You you took the family name. Uh, you took the, the bulk of the family property. You got a double portion. Uh, you carried this on. And I think Elisha is probably saying to Elijah, like, I want to be your true and full heir. I want a double portion. I want the inheritance of a firstborn. Um I don't think Elisha is necessarily saying, I want to do twice as much as you, but I want the full inheritance of a firstborn. At any rate, though, uh, what this leaves us with is the sense that Elisha knows that there is anointings that are lesser and greater of the Holy Spirit. The spirit that works in Elijah, it's possible to get more of that. And it's possible to get less of that. And that's what Elisha just seems to assume. And then Elijah says, well, that's a really big thing. I don't know if I can promise that to you, right? So in our overly simplified, like modern ideas, <laughs> we would just look at him and be like, you know what? God's fair. Everybody gets the same. Like, you, yeah, you seem like God gave you the spirit. And so that's enough. But uh, in Elijah's case, he's like, well, that's a really big ask, actually. Uh, and, and, and when we look to the New Testament, you might say, well, that was before Pentecost and everybody gets the fullness of the Spirit now, right? And that's the promise. Uh, but then, then we can actually find this in the New Testament as well. So in Romans 12, uh, Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say that everyone ought among you ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God had assigned. And it's the same word measure here uh, that is used in John 3, where we started all this discussion, where John the evangelist tells us that Jesus received the Spirit without measure. He had the whole shebang. There was no like portion that he got. He didn't get a big portion or a small portion. He got the whole thing dumped on him. Um, and and I, I realize that Paul in, a, in a Romans 12 is not specifically um, referring to the Holy Spirit necessarily, but he says, think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That is, some of you have a greater measure of this and others do have less. And then, of course, we get Ephesians 4, where again, Paul writes, grace, that is God's blessing, his free gift, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And um, and it is it is possible, again, it's not certain, uh, but it's possible that he's saying, well, the, the measure that Christ got, the full measure, we all get that, but it's also possible um, that in Ephesians 4, when Paul's talking about different gifts to different people in the building up the church, right, that he's saying like, like God took these gifts and then he measured them out differently to different people uh, as Christ determined, like it's his prerogative. And so the question then here for us is different, uh, and, and I, so I won't go any further there, um, 
except to say like maybe the way that we think about this is a bit constrained and it's more related to what we already assumed was true whether you get all of the holy spirit or or a, a certain portion of it or whatever usually we start with our conclusions and then we look for scripture to back up our point of view and to win arguments and i think that leads often to bad theology uh, what we do know here in john though is that john or the evangelist keep assuming it's John, it's probably John, right? <laughs> the, the evangelist wants us to know for certain that the reason you can take Jesus' words as God's very words is because God has given the fullness of the Spirit to Jesus without measure, and God has revealed all of these things into Jesus' hands. And so Jesus speaks not as one who like kind of partly sees and figures out what God is doing, but that God has given him the fullness of the Spirit, and so that we can take his testimony as truly and faithfully and completely the testimony of God through Jesus Christ. Okay, and then this is where it ends, and, and I know we're already a little bit on the long side, but we're going <laughs> to carry on because this is probably the most important part. Okay, oops. So, uh, he says, then whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And we all, if you're an evangelical Protestant, you're like, yeah, praise God. Uh, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then you go, wait, what? As it turns out, the opposite of believing here in verse 36 is disobedience. Let me say that again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The opposite of belief is disobedience. And that is because true obedience always, or true belief always entails obedience. You can't call Jesus Lord and not obey him. And we see this in the New Testament. And so in some ways, like the old Protestant, you know, by faith alone, salvation is by grace alone. It's God's gift to us. It is not earned. It is given freely and not according to our merit, but it is received when we respond with true faith, which entails obedience. And so James can write, uh, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Saying you believe but not obeying uh, is dead. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is not saying you have to earn your salvation, but he is saying if you think you believe but you don't actually obey Jesus, you're just lying to yourself. It's not true. And actually, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you understand? Like, you say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but if you do not obey him, then what does John tell us? What does the evangelist tell us? He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. And this brings us right back uh, to John 3, right? Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the 
only Son of God, right? So we, according to this, to John's gospel, like we are already by default, by our own sin, we're under God's wrath. His, his punishment is directed at us and is just being sort of restrained. And yet, uh, and so if you don't receive this forgiveness in Jesus Christ, then it will fall on you. And the way you receive that is through believing in Jesus and the evidence or, or the accompanying, if you will, transformation that comes with belief is obedience. If you do not obey, I think John's gospel says you're not saved. You will not see life. If you don't obey, he says, you shall not see life, and the wrath of God remains on you. Uh, in, in Matthew 7, we read that, Jesus goes on, and he's, he, we've heard this parable, perhaps, of the guy who built on the rock and on the sand, and we always, in my head, singing this in Sunday school, the guy who built on the rock was the guy who believed the Bible, and the guy who built on the sand wasn't. But actually, if you look at it, what it says is, the one who built on the rock is the one who hears the word and obeys it. And so that parable ends with Jesus saying this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so I have, I have hopefully challenged you many, many ways uh, today um, to understand that you, you've got to try to like fight against the presuppositions that you bring with you to scripture. I just read this book this week, uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Uh, it's a fascinating read, absolutely wonderful, well worth the read. It's a little bit on the thick side. Um, it's not I, I, just a casual read, but if uh, if you have a chance to read that, if you're looking for something to read, I highly recommend it. Um, it's challenging to me to say, like, Andy, be careful. You think you know what the Bible's talking about, but sometimes what you're seeing is more your own thoughts and your own culture and your own presuppositions rather than the Word. Um, and so hopefully there's been this caution. Uh, just because it's written in red letters doesn't mean that's a direct quotation from Jesus. That's a translation deal. Uh, we talked a little bit about the being born from above, having heavenly life sort of birthed in you. We talked about Jesus speaking God's word. Uh, and John's testimony about Jesus is the way that Jesus speaks God's word is because God's spirit rests in him without measure. There's no diminu diminution uh, there is no uh, smallering, shrinking, parceling out a portion of the Spirit to Jesus, but God has given the fullness of the Holy Spirit uh, and, and caused it to dwell in Jesus Christ. Um, and it remained there, as John testified earlier in the Gospel. And so Jesus speaks uh, God's very words because God has communicated with perfect and absolute clarity and completion to Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Uh, but the big one where I think probably most of us as Western Americans, if you're an evangelical Protestant, is to remember you are not saved just from hearing something and saying, oh, I think that's true. Like to believe in Jesus means to obey him. We might talk about this another time. Um, there is some discussion of this in this book about the relationship between grace, God's gift, and faith, sort of our response uh, to God. Uh, that's fascinating to think about. 
It might not be exactly what you've always assumed it to be, uh, but the testimony here, at least in John, is clear. If you don't obey the Son, you have not entered into life. God's wrath remains on you. And so especially if there's something in your life right now that is not surrendered to the will of God, that is not obedience, repent, turn from it, ask God to give you the strength to change your behavior and then change your behavior. Because Jesus expects obedience. That's what it means to be Lord. Thank you.